Galatians chapter 6. Um, let me pray. I'll do a quick review and then we'll work through verse 9 and 10 this morning. Well, let's pray once again. <clears throat> Our Father, what a privilege and a delight to gather together with your people on this day, this first day of the week that uh, you have set aside for us to worship, to rest, to be refreshed, to spend time just apart from all of the, the tasks that preoccupy us through every other day of the week. It's a great kindness that you have ordained this time, and so we pray that you would help us in the attitude of our hearts to make the most of it. Um, if we're left to ourselves, what we will do for the next few minutes is sit and think about literally anything but what's happening in this room, and uh, least of all, your word. So Holy Spirit, we plead that you would so work in our hearts and minds that we would be preoccupied just for just for these next few minutes preoccupied with what it is that you would say to us and that we would also be preoccupied with the person of your son so that as we leave here and as we do whatever we're going to do the rest of this week um, the echoes of Sunday morning would carry with us and we would tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday be equally interested in those things which concern our souls, heaven, and your will for our lives. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so last week, uh, we just looked at verses 7 and 8, and we saw two things real quick. First, we saw that we need to be careful to understand sowing and reaping in terms of grace or in light of grace rather than in terms or in light of the law. Uh, and then the second point was that frenetic religious activity is not fooling God. You're not deceiving God um, by exchanging authentic, genuine, heartfelt relationship with him for a bunch of church activities. Um, he is interested in communion with his creation, which is why the whole plan of redemption unfolds the way that it does. Through the death of Jesus Christ, we are brought into fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit. Um, anything else is an attempt at mocking God. Any replacement for gospel fellowship with his son through the Spirit is making a mockery of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Now, both of those points were essentially reviews of previous messages that we've heard from Galatians. So I don't think a lot of review is necessary, but let me say this just really briefly. Sowing or investing your time, your talent, your energy, your intellect, your practical resources, sowing in the spirit does not remove you from the economy of mercy. What I mean by that is just because Galatians 6, 7, and 8 so clearly calls you to action, do this 
not that, does not mean we have moved out of gospel implication now into practical implication. You still and forever, the life you have, you will have by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you must therefore be preoccupied with that relationship, not some activity that you can identify as sowing. We don't merit or earn salvation, period. However, if you possess eternal life, you cannot help but sow to the Spirit, which is why in the course of our review, and by the way, if you missed it, reviewing is precisely what Paul is doing in these verses. Uh, in the course of our review, I emphasize the following statement. If you're not at war with the instincts and deeds of your old nature, if you're not battling against the remnants of sin and the flesh, you are not a child of God. The licentious person demands the rights of a son or a daughter without desiring the nature of a son or a daughter. And God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. Sowing in the light of grace and in the economy of mercy then means constantly repenting, constantly believing, constantly trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ and constantly seeking communion with God. That's what it means. So verse 9, Galatians 6, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, writes and says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I have to begin by taking just a slight issue with the English Standard Version here. Um, the easiest way for me to do that is to look at a few other places in Scripture where the same phrase from which we get grow weary in the ESV, the same phrase is used. So I'm just going to rattle these off. Luke 18.1, Jesus is teaching, and he tells his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Second mm -hmm. Corinthians 4, 1, Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And later on in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, for some reason, the ESV, the NIV, the RSV, the NLT, I didn't even look at the King James, all these popular translations render this verse in Galatians 6 as grow weary or get tired instead of lose heart. And I think there's a subtle difference between getting tired and losing heart. I think you can catch the flu and get tired of doing good. That you can have some kind of a permanent, uh, uh, what do they call it? I don't know, physical malady. And, and as a result of the cumulative effect of having that malady, get tired of doing good. Fair enough. 
you can work to the point of utter exhaustion and get tired of doing good. You can stay up late counseling someone who is in a horrific situation and get tired of doing good. And what that means is not necessarily that you've lost heart, you're just exhausted and need to get some rest. And I don't think Paul is saying it's sinful to get tired. So I'm not sure grow weary or get tired is quite right here. I think it, it, it's more than that. So what does it mean to lose heart? Well, most of us know because we have at some level experienced it. If you're, I mean, older than five, you've probably lost heart before and remember what it was like. It's the moment, here's what I think. It's the moment you finally stop believing that something is going to happen. Now, when you come to the moment where you stop believing that something is going to happen, of necessity, you spent some moments before that hoping and wishing that this thing would happen. And then you finally resign yourself. It's not going to happen. The loved one isn't going to get better. A spouse isn't going to come to their senses. A dog who ran away isn't coming back. And all the missing signs aren't helping. The job offer from the interview a month ago, it's not coming. And they rarely have the decency to tell you that. The car is not going to start. <laughs> the thief is not going to return your property. The friend really did say that horrible thing about you. You have no friends in any of your classes this year at school. It's like you can just feel the hope running out of you. And it leaves behind a vacancy. You feel hollowed out. The problem is, with losing heart, the problem is all of your physical functions keep going. You can still breathe. Your physical heart keeps beating. You can still see, you can still smell, you can still feel stuff. You might even get hungry. Nothing tastes good. You keep feeling mostly terrible. Losing heart is actually, I think, a profound idiom. An idiom, by the way, homeschoolers, is a series of words put together to describe an emotional experience. Most people, when they lose heart, would say they feel it in their chest. The fight goes out of you. The optimism dries up. The will to try is just gone now. When you're eight years old, losing heart can be brought about by something, something as simple as a math problem. When you're 80, losing heart can be brought about by something as simple as a flight of stairs. You look at it and you go, no, it's just not happening. Or an injury. Sometimes we just lose heart. And sometimes we lose heart because we're just too tired. 
we get discouraged. Someday, I think, in my imagination, there's no biblical reason for me to believe this is going to happen. I just have an overactive imagination. Someday, when Jesus is setting all things right, I wonder if we will get a tour of the devil's workshop and see in there all of his cruel tools and tricks. I think if we did, we would be aghast, right? Because we would see lining the wall behind his workbench sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these with all of their edges and barbed points hanging up there. These tools, I think, would look wicked, razor sharp, and dangerous. I think we would weep if we could tour the devil's workshop because we would recall the times we had the hooks of jealousy, fits of anger, envy, and idolatry in us. We would be familiar already with one end of those tools, not the handle. But I think we'd also be a little surprised by something because on the side, in my mind, of the devil's workshop, leaning up against the counter, nondescript, inconspicuously, there is an old worn-out wooden club. I imagine compared to impurity, sorcery, and strife with their serrated edges and their long reaches and the stains from their previous use, this club looks fairly harmless. Till Peter walks up, picks the club up, turns it over in his hands and looks at us and says, oh, actually, I remember this one. And then he holds it up so we can see what's written on the handle and like chicken scratch etched carelessly into the handle is the word discouragement. And then we'll realize that might just have been the devil's favorite one. We felt it when we finished with immorality. We felt it when we finished with sorcery, when we finished with jealousy and bitterness, wrath and malice. We felt it whenever we sinned and knew better. That worn out club, half the time, we don't even realize who's wielding it. And we certainly don't realize that it was the tool used on us after we were already bleeding from immorality, drunkenness, and strife. I think it's the devil's favorite because he can use it after all of his other tools have worked or even when they didn't. We felt it smash into us when we tried everything we could think of to save our marriage. We felt it when we poured our heart and soul into VBS and someone made it about themselves instead of the kids. We felt it when we gave countless hours preparing Sunday school lessons and three people showed up. We felt it when we got sick the day our lost friend finally agreed to come to church. We felt it when we did the best we could, but mom and dad just weren't happy. 
We felt it when we couldn't rescue our kid from their own decisions. We felt it whenever somebody died. We felt it when we prayed and it didn't seem like God heard us. We felt it when we gave and gave and gave and gave and just had nothing left to give. Let's not become discouraged in doing good for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. You see why Paul writes this? Before the death of King Saul, when David was in the wilderness fleeing for his life, he accumulated quite a following. In fact, in in 1 Samuel 22, it says this. So David departed from Saul and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who was in distress Everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Over the next couple of years, as you read through 1 Samuel, what you see happen is David has a number of run-ins with Saul. The king in Israel is hunting the anointed king in Israel because he is full of envy and jealousy and strife towards David. David twice will clearly have the upper hand and the opportunity to kill Saul and put an end to all of this, but he doesn't do it because he believes it would be sinful. It would be not good for him to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. But he would make Saul aware that he'd had the opportunity. And here's what Saul would do. Saul would pretend to be sorry. Saul would pretend to have come to his senses And Saul would leave David alone for a time, for a short season. But Saul always eventually became consumed again by his own insecurity and took up the pursuit of David and his band of brothers once more. So eventually, David decides to flee from the promised land altogether. He leaves Israel and he heads to Israel's arch nemesis in Philistia, the land of the Philistines, the land of the giants. He and around 2,000 souls make their way to Philistia, where the enemies of Israel are thickest. And there, David indentures himself to the king in Gath, a man by the name of Achish. It takes some convincing, but Achish decides to put David and his warriors to work. So David's band attacks the enemies of the Philistines, specifically the ones who are also enemies of Israel. But he makes it seem like he's attacking Israel so that he can ingratiate himself to the Philistines. So David is in this incredibly stress-inducing balancing act where he's trying to stay off of King Saul's radar so that Saul doesn't figure out where he is. And he's trying to stay in the good graces of Achish in Philistia and convince the Philistines that he's no Israelite anymore. And he is successful. So successful that Achish gives David and his followers the town of Ziklag. And all 2,000 of them settle there and dwell in relative peace and prosperity. And they actually start to make a life for themselves in Ziklag. Then comes the day the Philistines gear up for a full attack on Israel. Now, put yourself in David's shoes. 
You are living in Soviet Russia because the president of the United States is persecuting you. You're not really a Russian. You're not really a communist. But you kind of have to pretend to be one so that they'll let you live there. That's the situation David's in. And then the people in the land where he's residing decide to make full-on war against Israel, your homeland. Well, David has no choice. He gears up and marches with him. I imagine wondering all the way, what am I going to do when we get to the border between Philistia and Israel? Thank God he's at the back of the army, so he's got time to figure it out. Meanwhile, the other lords of the Philistines get together with Achish and they say, listen, buddy, look, we know you like this David guy, but are you aware that he's slain thousands of Philistines? In fact, there's a song that says Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. We don't feel great about marching into Israel with that guy at the back of our army because we think he's going to turn on us as soon as we get in there. So Achish goes to David and says, listen, man, I did everything I could, but they don't want you to come. So just go back to Ziklag. Disaster averted. Except for this. Now you know what's marching on your homeland. Saul of Side, those are your people over whom one day you're supposed to be king. And they're being marched upon by a Philistine army. So I don't think David and his men head back to Ziklag greatly encouraged. About an hour outside of Ziklag, they see smoke on the horizon. About five miles away, they realize something's very wrong. And as they come into their town, they realize the entire thing has been burned to the ground and there is nobody remaining. All of the wives, all of the children, all of the livestock, gone. And not surprisingly, there is talk among David's warriors of stoning David because he got us into this mess and now we've lost everything. Turns out the Amalekites, ever the opportunistic antagonists of Israel from the day they left Egypt and the very same people who Saul had refused to obey God and eradicate, the Amalekites had raided Ziklag and destroyed it. What David and his men didn't know is that they hadn't killed the women and children, just captured them. It's not important. It's not germane to why I'm bringing up the story. 1 Samuel 30, verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them left to weep. That's what it looks like to lose heart. And then... Doesn't take those men long to blame David. The only reason they're in Ziklag is David refused to kill Saul, refused to sin against God and overthrow his enemy. And it's Saul's fault the Amalekites are even in existence. There's talk of stoning David because people get tired of doing the right thing. So often the reward for doing what's right is the devil beats you with a cudgel named discouragement. 
Oh, we know why Paul writes this. Doesn't it start to seem like it would be easier to just kill all your enemies? I guess I'm the only one. Like, go ahead and gossip. What difference does it make? They're doing it about you. Why should you be the bigger person? Go ahead, commit adultery. Your spouse doesn't appreciate you. Go ahead, get drunk. At least it numbs the pain of a miserable existence. Go ahead, quit going to church. It's full of hypocrisy anyway. And they all said, amen. (laughs) Go ahead, quit praying. No one seems to be listening. Go ahead, quit serving. Nobody appreciates it. You feel the blows of discouragement and doing the right thing just seems like it invites more discouragement. Oh, we, we know why Paul wrote this verse, right? There was a guy named Alan Redpath who pastored the Moody Church in Chicago in the 50s, 1950s. You have to say that now. Um, and he later pastored uh, uh, the, the Charlotte Baptist Chapel in Edinburgh, Scotland. And he has a couple of quotes that I find really helpful on this topic. Uh, So let me just say, I agree with these and I believe they're biblical. Here's the first one. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. Or I would say a woman and crushes her. And second, Every discouragement has been allowed to come to us in order that through it, we every discouragement has been allowed to come to us in order that through it, we may be cast in utter helplessness at the Savior's feet. Christian, you are not being discouraged because God hates you or doesn't care about you. Let us not grow weary. Let us not lose heart. Let us not be discouraged in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's not a call for you to grit your teeth and try harder. That's not a call to squeeze harder until your knuckles are more white. In moments of profound discouragement, Paul would have us fix our eyes on the promise. In due season, we will reap. Well, that sounds like faith prosperity stuff. Well, you know what? Sometimes God incentivizes us with the promise of good things. In due season, we will reap if we don't give up. Reap what? Money, power, influence, a promotion, a bigger barn? No. Verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Look, I can't give up on doing what I know is, I mean, not that I do it perfectly. I can't give up on doing what I know is right because I understand ultimately the place that I'm headed is perfect fellowship with the one who saved me. And he said, hey, I want you to do things this way. Watch. And then he suffered and died having done nothing wrong ever. That's my example. 
Don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't lose heart in doing what's right. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. This is the best way. I have learned to kiss the wave which throws me against the rock of ages. So whatever the circumstance of my life that smashes me against the throne of grace, I become thankful for that circumstance. As discouraged as I might be, if it drives me to the person and work of Jesus Christ, then it's a good thing. If I become this much less dependent on my own confidence and hair and muscles and good looks, like I'm just getting ready for eternity. The more those things get shaved away, the more realistic we really are, right? Yeah, I had hopes and dreams for my life 15 years ago. And man, did it ever not look like it does today. All of us can say that. Yeah, I made investments that not only didn't pan out, not only did I lose the investment, it cost relationships, friendships. I don't think I'll see restored this side of eternity. But I wouldn't go back because all of these events have served to draw me closer than ever before to the one who holds my heart in mercy. Don't be discouraged unto hopelessness. God has a use for discouragement. It makes us less independent. It makes us less self-confident. It makes us forsake frantic religious activity in favor of lying down in green pastures. I'm here for it. Right? Give me some green pastures. Give me some still waters. Well, you might have to get discouraged. Okay, I'll get discouraged. Don't grow weary of doing what's right. Grow weary of doing what is wrong. David, as we know, eventually becomes the king of Israel and writes 75 of the 150 Psalms. How many times have you drawn life-saving encouragement from those Psalms? See, God used his discouragement in a marvelous and beautiful and eternal way. What's to say he can't do the same with yours? If you're discouraged, that's okay. Don't lose heart in doing what's right. What if David had said, forget it. I'm done writing songs. They're all garbage and Nashville doesn't like anything anyway. And didn't many of those psalms come from the deepest pit of despair? You know what David did with discouragement? Two things. First, he took his discouragement to the throne of grace where his father in heaven tended his broken heart. Second, he put his own discouragement to work, encouraging the saints for all of history. So then, as we have the opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I mean, could this be any more obvious? We should encourage one another, right? We'll take enough beatings from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. Like, let's not do it to one another. 
Let's take our sorrows and griefs to the foot of the cross and the throne of grace and let's encourage one another along the path of life. All right, let's pray.